going to go ahead and get started here tonight. Uh, we're going to be continuing the study we've got the last couple weeks. Uh, we've, we're doing a four-part study on the book of Habakkuk. This will be the third sermon, so we'll be here tonight and one more week if you want to start heading that way. Uh, we're going to go ahead and recap real quick. What have we talked about so far? Uh, what is going on throughout the rest of the book? Kind of get everybody caught up who hasn't been here. Uh, the key themes, the things that we're coming back to over and over again in this book are faith, the judgment of sin, and the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is on the throne. God is in control. Those are the things that we're going to be coming back to every week. We're going to be looking at them from different angles, but those are the things that we're really trying to learn about in this study. Uh, Habakkuk is a man of many difficult questions. Uh, that's something that we've looked at so far. Uh, he's asked, how long? How long is God going to allow evil to go on? He's asked, why? Why does God do the things that he does? Why does he seem to work so slow? Or why does he seem to work in ways that don't make any sense to us? Uh, he asked, why was Israel in the shape that it was in? Why, when he looked around him, did he see violence? Did he see robbery? Did he see all these injustices amongst God's people? Uh, why is God not taking care of that? Why is he not taking those things away? Uh, we looked at the fact that God answered that promise. And he promised that those things will be judged. What seems unjust now is not going to be unjust in the end. Uh, he goes on, he asks another question of God. Uh, the question's about the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, your translation might say. Uh, and he asked him, uh, how can God use the even more unjust nation of the Chaldeans to judge his people Israel? Habakkuk did not understand how God was working in the things that he was doing, how he could do those sorts of things. And we closed off last week with Habakkuk patiently, faithfully, expectantly waiting for an answer from God. And today the passage that we're going to look at is God's answer to that question. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. And this will be a longer passage of Scripture than we've looked at so far. Most of the time we've looked at you know, one or two verses or a few verses. We're going to go through basically all of chapter 2 here. So there will be more topics that we're hitting, but we won't have time to go in quite as much depth. We're going to be kind of just going through verse by verse here. We're going to be asking, what does this Scripture say? Uh, kind of what does it mean and how does it apply? We'll go and ask, what does the rest of Scripture say about these things? We're going to start out with Habakkuk recording this prophecy. That, that's how we have it today. Uh, we're going to have a discussion about living by faith. And then there are five uh, woe passages, that promising judgment on the wicked that God gives to Habakkuk. So with all that said, we're going to get to our main text today. If you would stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 2. And it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations, and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not, will not all these take up a proverb against him, and a taunting riddle against him, and say, 
Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies. That the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All right, you may be seated. So the first passage that we're going to look at is verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on the tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will not speak and will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. He's told to write the vision. So this is back literally recording what we have in Scripture here. He's commanded this for two reasons. Right? This is to make this vision permanent. It keeps it here. It establishes it forever, and it makes it accessible for all of us to this very day and all of the people in Habakkuk's day. And we're going to address both of those things. But I want you to know that God's Word has, given, has been given to them, to Habakkuk, to those around him. God gave that vision to them at that appointed time, but it has also been preserved for us. Romans 15.4 says, What was written in former days was written for our instruction. God has preserved His Word that we would learn from it. Uh, he says He's been given a vision here. That's the revelation, the prophecy. We need God's written Word, this vision that's been recorded for us. This is how God has preserved the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints 2,000 years ago. Uh, God's Word in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And God's word here in Habakkuk has been with us for the last 2,600 years with faithful believers benefiting from it. The word of God is for you. Uh, and Jason talked about this a little bit this Sunday. Uh, this is not just for Habakkuk. Uh, it's not just for preachers and teachers. In Scripture, we see in Acts 17, the Bereans searching the Scriptures, the church themselves, to see if what the apostles were telling them was true. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says to prove all things. That's a command that's given to the entire church. Uh, I, I even think amongst good Bible-believing churches, we have a tendency to fall into the trap of saying, 
well, you know, the guy up front up there, he does the Bible stuff, and, and then he shows up, and then he tells me about it, right? Well, not necessarily, right? The Word of God has been preserved for you. It is something that you can understand, that you can benefit from. It says that he may run. He's been given an urgent message. It's something that God has assured his people of the judgment of evil. He's going to assure them that deliverance will come, that all of this will be put to an end. But he's giving them an opportunity to put into practice what we talked about last week. When we spent all that time about working out God's timing. The fact that he knows best. That his work might seem slow, but it was certain. It was on his time. He assures us he is in control and wants us to trust him. We need to wait for him patiently and expectantly, the same things he's been telling us in the last couple chapters. It can be easy to grow discouraged. Evil may seem to have the upper hand for a time, but God tells us right here, he has spoken. There is an appointed time where all of those things are going to come to an end. And and that time was fulfilled. We see that in Scripture. And he tells all of us today that all of the evils that we see around us, there is an appointed time where all of those things are going to come to an end. If you look at verse 4 and 5, he talks about uh, the proud man, uh, his soul not being upright, but the just shall live by his faith. Uh, These verses are set in place to contrast these two people, the proud man and the just. It says the proud man's soul is not upright. It gives us all sorts of examples in verse 5. It says he doesn't stay at home, right? He's restless, that he enlarges his desire as hell. He's, he's covetous. He, he just wants more. He's unsatisfied. He's constantly uh, heaping things up for himself. And that's totally different from what we see with the just, godly man. The proud man is restless. He has no peace. The just man has the peace of God to go with him. Uh, the proud man spends endless days heaping up these earthly treasures for himself. The just man spends his time laying up treasure in heaven. The proud man is never satisfied with what he has. And I, I've, I like cliches, you know. I, I said one to you last week. I'll give you another one right here. That Maybe this proud man has a God-sized hole and he's trying to fill it with all of the wrong things. But the just man can quote Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can be satisfied in God. The proud trust in himself. The just lives by his faith. Chapter 2, verse 4 is probably by far, I would say, the most famous verse in all of Habakkuk. It's also the verse that's quoted the most in the New Testament. Uh, Paul quotes it twice in Galatians and Romans. We also see it in the book of Hebrews. And we're not going to have time to get into all of those Uh, ways that the New Testament authors use this verse. But I'd encourage everybody here, uh, while you're doing your Bible reading this week, flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, This verse is quoted right at the end of verse 10. In in verse 11, the author gives us example after example after example of what it looks like to live by faith. Uh, That's an amazing chapter. It's a very long chapter. We don't have time to read the whole thing right now, but I think it's at least worth mentioning. But we still have to ask, what is it To live by faith. Habakkuk says the just will live by faith. I think there's a lot of ways that we can answer that. We can say to live by faith is to have unwavering trust in God despite any circumstances. No matter how dark the times get. 
uh, to have faith is to live by faith is to know that all of God's promises are going to be kept. We learn something about the nature of faith in this verse, and I think that's something that so many people misunderstand. Uh, faith is not just a, a one-time; it's not just the decision, right? It's not just a one-time act that takes place when you get saved. It's not just something that happens in your head where you just decide, okay, I'm convinced in my brain that Jesus is the Son of God and that He was raised from the dead or something along those lines. Faith is something you live by. It's something that affects what you do. It's something that goes with you continually throughout your life. And if you have your Bibles, the next verse we're going to look at is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Or the Apostle Paul tells us something about living by faith. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So first of all, I just want to say, isn't that great? I love that verse. That's one of my favorites right there. But we live a life by faith. We live by faith. The Apostle Paul lived by faith. Our life is to be characterized by it in every way. And something else that you'll notice here is that this has never changed. The book of Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people have this idea that, oh, well, back in the Old Testament days, uh, that was back when they, they kept the law, they did a bunch of good things, and then God took care of them. Right? Well, now we live by grace. right? We don't do that anymore. Now, this is the Old Testament. Nothing has changed. They might be looking forward to Christ and we're looking back to Christ, but the only way that anybody in this world is ever going to be saved is by faith in Christ. Uh, with faith, the Bible says that we can please God. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says we cannot please God without faith. This is a necessity. It's something that we must have. Uh, the scriptures say that faith is powerful. It says, by faith, we overcome the world. By faith, we can go out and we can let our light so shine among men that they glorify our Father in heaven. By faith, we can look to eternal things that last forever, that give us a firm foundation to build our lives and hopes on. Not temporal things that pass away like we see with the Chaldeans. Jesus says that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Uh, that's something that... Uh, I don't know if we always take that as seriously as we should. No matter the situation, we should have faith. Ephesians chapter 6 says, The shield of faith by which you extinguish all darts of the evil one. You can handle anything with the shield of faith. And I think we should all be able to say, just like the Apostle Paul does in the book of Romans, If God be for us, who can be against us? We should have faith in God at all times. And now this, this second part that I want to look at is the five woes uh, at the end of chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. This is something a little bit different. What that is, a woe is basically a pronouncement of judgment. right? You can think of a judge laying down his sentence, so, something along those lines. Actually, what I thought about when I first read through this was, uh, if you guys will remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Right? Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, this is sort of the exact opposite of that. This is like the anti-beatitudes, right? Woe unto all those that do all of these things. 
And we're going to address the first two woes together. So we'll be looking at verses 6 to 11 just because they have very similar content. They're talking about similar things. They're about the greediness of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were greedy. It's talking about their, their extortion, their plunder, their robbery, their taking advantage of other people. Uh, but the tables are going to be turned. And you'll see this in all of these verses and all of these woes. Uh, it's almost ironic, the judgment that's coming on them. Right? The exact thing that they've done to other people are the things that are going to be turned around and done to them as a result. That, that's how God has chosen to judge them. Uh, their creditors, you see in verse 7, are the other nations. These nations they've been oppressing, they've been murdering, they've been robbing, are going to rise up against them. This tells us God's standard of right and wrong can be ignored. You can go through your life sinning, but there will be consequences. Sin never pays in the long run. Uh, they've used justice, injustice, violence to build up their houses, build up their wealth, thinking that that would protect them. Their fortunes have come at the expense of others less fortunate than them. They've acquired all these things by evil means. They've, the scripture here says they've cut off people. There's been bloodshed. There's been violence. Uh, in verse 11, it says the stones and timbers will cry out. Uh, this is probably something of stolen materials. Things that they've cheated people out of. The things they've built their houses with will cry out against them. Nothing, nothing even something like that is going to stay hidden. They are going to be held responsible. And the motivation for all of it, all of these evil actions was greed. Covetousness. It was that talking about never being satisfied. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 it says the love of money which is, is greed, money is just a way to get resources, is the root of all evil. They were willing to do terrible things to gain resources. Jesus has a lot to instruct us on this matter. Are we to be greedy? The answer is absolutely not. In Luke chapter 12, he says, Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. I think a lot of us could probably learn from that. In Mark chapter 8, he asked, What does it profit a man... To gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. Uh, another place in the New Testament contains a, a similar condemnation. If you will, turn with me to the book of James. We're going to look at chapter 5 and verses 1 to 6. So James 5, starting in verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And uh, I, I know in verse 1 it says he, he's talking to the rich. He's not condemning all rich people. What he goes on to condemn is the means by which they became rich. The fact that they were abusing and taking advantage or even murdering other people. We can't be driven to these ends like Babylon. We can't become like the Chaldeans. And how do we avoid the woe that God places upon them? 
We have to listen to Jesus' instructions in places like Acts chapter 20 where he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. We have to be generous, not greedy. I heard that every year at Christmas. I never knew where it came from, but I've been hearing that my entire life. We should be generous. We should be fair. We should never cheat anybody. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says God loves a cheerful giver. We're told to seek first His kingdom, not to spend up our days piling up wealth for ourselves. And we can feign generosity. Uh, We're told in, in the Gospels that Judas became angry when a gift was brought to Jesus. He said, why didn't we sell that? Why didn't we give it to the poor? Uh, And it later told us that uh, Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas was a thief. We can feign generosity, but God knows. We have to be generous in truth. We have to avoid the greediness that they become consumed with. We have to avoid covetousness. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 says, Be content with what you have. If God gives you more, so be it. But be content with what He has given you. We have no right to steal. We have no right to take advantage of others. When we come to Christ, all of those things are put behind us. I think there's a beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 4 that says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And that's what we should all strive to do. Well, let's look at verses 12 to 14 real quick. It says, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we see more evil tactics used by the city's builders. We specifically see violence, bloodshed here, uh, building themselves up. Uh, We find out that these things are all going to fall. They're feeding the fire. Their works have no lasting value. All their might in the world means nothing if the Lord is set against them. All that they gained is eventually going to be lost. And we see contrary to that, that God's work is not in vain in verse 14. The whole world is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. The knowledge of His presence is someday going to be universal. The Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And I think that we should say at least a few words here about the murder, the bloodshed, the violence that keeps coming up. Uh, This is one of the Ten Commandments. This is very important to God, thou shalt not kill. But he even mentions it long before that. We we can go way back to the book of Genesis. One of the earliest mentions is in chapter 9. If you look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And we learn here that taking innocent life has consequences. I'll let you decide what, what big issue that probably applies for us today. No one has the right to take an innocent life that has been made in the image of God. This is something that we all probably nod our heads, we all agree with. I, I'm glad. I, I'm glad that we all feel that way. Well, let, let me add one more verse from the New Testament. That might make you think a little bit. This is 1 John 3.15 says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And Jesus taught the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Now that doesn't mean that they're, they're equal sins or something like that. It means they're the same kind of sin. If you can think they're on the same spectrum. Murder is just way further down the spectrum. These are sins that, 
we are all guilty of in some form or fashion. It should drive all of us to humility, all of us to repentance. Looking at verses 15 to 17, uh, it says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you in the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. All right, so we're going to talk about their, their perverted manipulation, leading people into sin. It says the means they used to do that was alcohol. They were getting people drunk. Uh, uh, this is possibly a reference to sexual immorality, but it's more likely the idea is shame, right? The person is acting foolish. They're, they've, they're naked. These people have been led or maybe even forced into doing these things so that they can sort of point and laugh, that, that sort of thing. Well, God's punishment fits the crime again. And we hear that His powerful right arm, the sign of His power and retribution, is passing them the cup of His judgment now. Uh, they're going to, the same way that they exposed others, they are going to be drunk and exposed as uncircumcised. Now, if you've never read the Old Testament, that probably sounds like a very weird comment. I'll throw in real quick. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign of God's covenant. All of the men and God's people were circumcised. So to be shown as uncircumcised was to be shown that you were not one of God's people. Uh, that's the significance of that comment. In verse 17, we see that their cruelty has gone beyond murder and bloodshed with people. It says that it's even extended to the land, the animals. Uh, they're completely cruel without uh, any discrimination. Anything that they can be cruel to, they're being cruel to it. We have to avoid, I think the most important thing in this section is verse 16. As believers, not only should we not be leading people into sin, let alone forcing people into those sorts of situations, we need to do the exact opposite of those things. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, Be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And setting that example makes a difference. The same way that these Chaldeans here had a real effect on these people, we can have a real effect in the opposite direction. We can be a blessing to somebody in their lives as opposed to a curse that we see in verse 16. Romans chapter 14, verse 13 says, Never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of one of your brothers. In any way, whether that be teaching from the pulpit, whether that be your speech, your conduct, whatever it may be, never put a stumbling block, an opportunity to trip up your brother. Uh, and then finally, in verses 18 to 20, we talk about idolatry. So he goes into verse 18, and what profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies? We're talking about actual physical idols okay, that people have constructed, they've put it together, and they've said, oh, there it is, there's God, right, as this little idol. Uh, you'll notice that these idols are made by men. Uh, the real God is the opposite. The real God is the one who has made the men. Um, we're told in this passage that idols, these false gods, uh, they're nothing, they're worthless, they're powerless, they're teachers of lies. He is God, there is no other. We need to know that there is one on the throne. There is one God. There is no compromise with this. 
There is one God, and we cannot replace him with anything else. There's one God, one creator. And we need to know that idolatry is not an outdated sin. This, just like all of these other sins, affects all of us, even if it affects us in somewhat different ways. We probably all nod our heads and agree that the block of wood is not God. I mean, that, that seems almost silly when you say it like that. But neither is your spouse, neither are your kids, neither is your career, neither is any of the other things that you could use to replace God. God is God, and nothing else can replace Him. He is the one that belongs on the throne. And in verse 20, we're told that all of the earth is to keep silent before Him. Out of respect, out of reverence, all of us. Even at this point, this is not just Israel. God is the God of the whole earth, every nation. He is going to have people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. He is the God of the whole world. All right, so that is Habakkuk chapter 2. Today's discussion has been around some of the normal themes that you'd expect to see in Habakkuk. Those are... Judgment of evil, living in faith, God's sovereignty. I'm sure next week we'll be talking about similar issues just from a slightly different angle. Uh, but I'd like to, to leave you with something that kept jumping out at me in this study, and that is that sin, no matter what it looks like in the short run, no matter how it pans out in this life, sin never pays off in the long run. That you will never regret spending your life living by faith. It says the just shall live by faith, and that should be all of us. Woe does not have to come to you, because Christ has come down from heaven. He has been born in a manger. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins. He was raised from the dead, and He has ascended into heaven, where He intercedes for every one of His people to this very day. He has done all of that for your salvation, so that those woes do not have to come on to you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And obviously, if anybody would like to talk about that, we are always here for you. Uh, you know where to find us. If you say, I don't like that little short, fat feller up there on the stage, we'll find somebody else for you. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get it done. All right, guys, we've got a couple minutes left. Does anybody have any questions or comments before we pray out? Jason, we press out.